So, as we continue our studies, uh, looking at the life of David in this series, this chapter that Hannah just read to us, chapter 22, marks a big turning point. Uh, The reason I say that is because up to now, this conflict between King Saul and David has just just been between the two of them. When I read this chapter, I'm, I'm tempted to say, boy, that escalated quickly. Because here in this chapter, other people are caught up, tragically caught up in the crossfire For the first time, there is what, in a time of war, we would call collateral damage. As Saul brutally executes 85 priests who he wrongly suspects of conspiring with David against him. It it doesn't make for easy reading this chapter, does it? I, I, I hope that strikes you. This chapter is grim. But here, here, let me try and explain what I want us, what I want you to get out of today. One of the key features, I think, of this chapter is that as the conflict between Saul and David escalates, it, it brings with it the kind of wider political dimension. As people in the country, in the nation of Israel, are now beginning to be sucked into this dispute, The challenge for them is that they're faced with a choice. Which side will they be on? Will they follow the current king, Saul, who has all the power but uses it selfishly and brutally? Or will they be drawn to to David, God's chosen future king? The big idea in this chapter, I think, is that people had to choose which man to give their allegiance to. The current king or the future king? I actually thought we might have a little vote today. I actually considered printing off little coloured cards to give you so you could vote apprentice style at the end. Um, We won't do that. But um, this chapter splits very naturally into two it's as if the author is, if this was a film, the author's like given us two camera angles and in the first few verses, the focus is on David and his movements and then when we've seen that, we'll, the camera will shift and the focus will be on Saul and what Saul is doing in the second section. So I think in this chapter we can easily compare David and compare and contrast him with Saul and try and pick a side. Maybe at the end, when we've had a look, think about this question. Keep this in mind. If you lived in these days, who would you choose out of these two men to be the king? Who would you follow? Who would you give your allegiance to from these two men? So these two sections, I've entitled them, first of all, David on the move, and then secondly, Saul on the prowl. So it gives you a clue what I think anyway. David on the move, first of all, it's a shorter section, verses 1 to 5. And um, there we go. We've already done that. David on the move. Verses 1 to 5 are a little bit like a mini travel itinerary. Sometimes if you go on a little uh, package holiday, they'll give you a little itinerary, itinerary. And this seems to be like a little summary here of David's movement. 
And there's three separate places mentioned. The details are very brief, but I think there's some helpful things we can see as we whiz by and join David on his travels on the move. The first place that's mentioned in verse 1 is the cave of Adullam. David found out in chapter 20 that he wasn't safe in Israel because Saul was trying to kill him. Then in chapter 21, uh, Luke uh, helpfully was preaching last week. Chapter 21, David flees over the border and goes to the land of the Philistines. And he discovers that he's not safe there either, which is tough for him, isn't it? He's not safe at home. He's not safe away. And so now David resorts to hiding in a cave near the border between Israel and the Philistine territory. David here is hiding in the shadows, almost between the cracks, between the two countries. But it isn't long before his cave gets a little bit crowded. I don't know how big it was. First of all, in verse 1, we learn that David's family comes to join him. Don't forget, it wasn't that long ago before his brother was mocking him on the battlefield. Do you remember when his older brother, Eliab, Eliab basically said to him, I know what you're playing at, you just want to see the battle, get lost. Now David has matured into an important figure in this nation. And David's family uh, come to join him in this cave. It says, when his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. Maybe they felt Saul would come to Bethlehem looking for David and they would experience the sharp end of Saul's sword. It makes you wonder whether they feared for their safety. So they come to join him. But secondly, in verse 2, look with me. There's another group who come to this cave to join David. It says there that all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around David and he became their commander or leader. About 400 men were with him. Must have been a big cave. Later on we read in verse 7, I think it is, of Saul giving power and land to the men in his tribe of Benjamin but it isn't those people who show up at the cave of Adullam here it isn't the people who benefited from Saul's generosity who came these people are fed up these are the losers in Saul's kingdom these are the downtrodden the disillusioned these men are so fed up with Saul and so desperate at being part of Saul's kingdom that they come and throw their lot in with David even though he's an outlaw. And it's interesting that the author emphasizes here that David becomes their leader. I, I, I think this initially sounds like David becoming the manager of a really, really rubbish Sunday league football team. This is a motley crew. This is a ragtag bunch of misfits from the ragged edges of their society. 400 of them to begin with. Later on, this group, we're told, goes to 600. And some of these men actually are mentioned later as being part of David's elite troops in the future. 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 22, we're told that day after day men came to help David until he had a great army like the army of God. This is the beginning of men who are fed up with Saul, defecting to join David in the hope of a better kingdom. And they're certainly making their vote here, aren't they? Have we given them cards to hold up like the apprentice? They're, they're picking their side. We're not following Saul anymore. We are choosing to follow David. It's worth highlighting, just as we pass, that this experience here is part of David's character formation. As Saul is disintegrating, God is preparing David here to be a leader and a king in at least two different ways. Firstly, I think these men would help David to understand the problems faced by ordinary Israelites. Think about it. If David had stayed in the palace, eating palace food, living in the luxury that a palace provides, having the benefit of a safe environment, he would never have been exposed to this, would he? But here in the cave of Adullam, he meets face to face the day-to-day realities of people who are on the margins of society, vulnerable, oppressed, disappointed people, people who the system conspires against. And here they come to David, and David at this point, I think, is learning to listen and understand and hear people's concerns. He, he, he's learning to sympathize with people. That's a good lesson to learn, isn't it? Secondly, surely David here is learning how to lead as well. If David could mold and shape these frustrated, depressed men into a sharp and disciplined and loyal crack team, he can lead anything, can't he? David here is learning the skills of how, not just to sympathize with people, but how to lead and motivate and unite people. This is a dark time in David's life. But here in the shadows, by God's remarkable grace and help, David is learning both to understand people better and developing his own leadership skills. This, I think, is part of what makes David one day the great king that he becomes. It seems to me here that people are drawn to him as a leader. They loved him. David seems to have inspired loyalty in his men. We'll come on to that as we follow his journey And as we look at other passages, here's an application for you to think about this afternoon. Do not underestimate the possibilities that God might have for you in your more difficult days. David here could have sulked and wallowed in his self-pity and disappointment But somehow, by God's grace, these difficult days become a period of training 
and maturing that David perhaps wouldn't have experienced in any other way. Secondly, David moves from the cave of Atullam to a stronghold in a place called Mizpah in Moab. When I was reading commentaries on this, um, that place named Mizpah could be a place or it could be describing a fortress or castle or stronghold. It's the same word. And David's motive here for going to Moab becomes clear. He is concerned about the safety of his elderly parents. I didn't know that, I, I, I hadn't really noticed this before, but back in Samuel, 1 Samuel 17, 12, the writer makes a throwaway comment and tells us that David's father, Jesse, was old and well advanced in years during the time of King Saul. And the last thing elderly parents need is the thrill and the excitement of hiding in a dark cave when the king of the country is chasing after you. I think if your elderly father with his walking stick was there with you, I think you'd have the same instinct as David here. I need to find some babysitters here for my elderly parents to protect them from this trial and trouble that I'm facing. For most of Israel's history, Moab was an enemy nation. But remember this. David's great-grandmother was Ruth. We looked at Ruth, didn't we, last year? And what nation was Ruth from? David's own great-grandmother was a Moabitess. So David here has Moabite blood in his veins... And what a remarkable providence of God that is, that in his time of desperate need, something that happened maybe a hundred years before comes to his aid now, and he can go to the king of Moab and say, hey, can my parents stay here in Moab until this trial has passed? They'll be safe there. I want you to notice too, The contrast here, Saul's family relationships are falling apart. As Hannah read to us, did you notice how Saul is flinging accusations about? He's falling out with his closest allies. But but David is experiencing here the exact opposite. As Saul drives people away from him with his behavior, David's family, his brothers who once mocked him, are coming to him. And here David shows great compassion in looking after their safety and providing for their needs. Thirdly, just in the last verse there, David moves on in verse uh, 5. It says there that the prophet Gad said to David, Don't stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah And we're told that David left and went to the forest of Herath. This final brief reference is to David being commanded by a prophet to move. This is the first mention of this chap called Gad. But he seems to have become a long-standing and loyal servant of David throughout the rest of his life. 
And you, you know and appreciate the idea of prophets was that they would come and they would speak. They were called by God to speak the words of God into the lives of the Israelite people. And I think the key thing that the author wants us to see here is that even though David is on the run as an outlaw here, God has not abandoned him. God still speaks to David. God is still sending his messengers to communicate with him. Last week, we were thinking with Luke of David's desperation. And one writer says this, Desperation is no fun, but desperation and silence are unbearable. to, To be absolutely desperate is one thing. But to be desperate and not to hear any word of encouragement or direction from God is like a double whammy, isn't it? Desperation and silence is an awful thing. But David here experiences God's guiding voice. And let's notice too as we pass through quickly that David's, David's obedience and patience here He says to the king of Moab in verse 3, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? He's waiting for God. And then when the prophet comes and directs him, it seems like David is instantly obedient. He does exactly what God tells him via the prophet to do. There's no hesitation. And of course, the contrast being made here is that King Saul isn't hearing anything from God at all. He's disobedient. He's alone. He's becoming increasingly isolated. Sometimes, you know, those who have the most power have the least spiritual insight. By the end of this chapter, Saul has slaughtered all of his priests and alienated his closest guards. And by the end of this chapter, David has both a prophet and a priest in his corner. Saul is driving those close to him away. David is gathering. And the point here is that even though David is on the run, God has not left him all alone but is with him and helping him and sending his messengers to instruct him and minister to him. They're only brief, these verses, aren't they? Five verses, little travel itinerary. But the overall picture we get here is of a David who is trusting God and obeying God even in his most difficult days. Another writer observes that at the center of his being David seemed to believe that his life was ultimately not in Saul's hand, but in God's care. The centre of his being, David seemed to believe that his life was ultimately not in Saul's hand, but in God's care. Here is God's chosen and anointed king in waiting. He's being prepared. He's compassionate 
And in his heart, he's in touch with God, the great God and Father who's helping him and sustaining him. So there's one camera angle, okay? Let's look at the other camera angle and see something of Saul's behavior and attitude at this same moment. So this is verses uh, 6 down to the end of the chapter. I entitle this, Saul on the Prowl. Let's have a look here. Fragility. I want you to see the deep contrast that the author is deliberately conjuring up for us here. At this point, David is hiding in a cave. It even The language is even that men came down to him in the cave. David is in the dark and he's low down. He's in the shadows having to beg food and weapons from a priest in the previous chapter. David here is skulking around the edges. And Saul is the picture of freedom and security sitting on the top of the world. Look at what it says in verse 6. Saul was seated. That implies that he's relaxed. He's seated, trusty spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree, on the hill, at Gibeah, with all his officials standing at his side. David's in the shadows. Saul's on top of the world. David looks fragile. Saul looks secure. But all is not what it seems, is it? We've seen something of David's attitude. David is secure even though he looks fragile. Saul is fragile even though he looks secure. Appearances can be so deceiving. In verse 6, Saul learns that David's whereabouts has again been discovered. But there's another piece of intelligence that comes to Saul. If you blink, you might miss it. Look at what it says in verse 6. Now Saul heard that David and his man. This is a growing situation. Saul's concerned that David now is building a team. And the very mention of David's name seems to drive Saul into an irrational tirade against his own team. He's paranoid. He can't even bring himself to say David's name and spits out the name, son of Jesse. Saul was part of the tribe of Benjamin. And it seems like he's given all of the top jobs to his own kinsmen. Look at what he says here in verse 7. He said to them, listen, men of Benjamin, these are all his mates. These These are his brothers, his own kinsmen. He's given them all the top jobs. Will the son of Jesse give you all the fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? He appeals to tribal jealousy. Will David look after you in the same way that I'll look after you? There's a kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back politics going on here. But then in verse 8, he makes the massive mistake, I think, of accusing his closest allies of conspiring. Is this why you've all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. 
And then we see Saul not just being paranoid, but also feeling sorry for himself. None of you are concerned about me. You can almost hear Saul. No one loves me anymore. And to cap it all, he accuses his son Jonathan of actually being behind this whole thing and inciting David to ambush King Saul. One writer says, this is the ranting and raving of a desperate man. He's losing the plot, isn't he? He's becoming so fearful that the tide of loyalty is flowing away from him and towards David and he lashes out at his closest officials. Don't you feel sure that at this point everyone would have been looking at their shoes? Utter silence. No one catching his eye. Don't cough. Don't draw attention to yourself. Just the boss is going mad. Let's just look at our shoes. No one dares say anything to him. And then someone does cough and break the silence. And this man is not an Israelite. And he really is a despicable piece of work. An opportunist. He doesn't care. He sees a chance to get into Saul's good books. And in this moment, this individual also chooses his side. We've met him before. He was there last week in chapter 21, eavesdropping. And when he heard and saw that David had gone to Ahimelech, the priest, here he speaks up. We find the verse, verse 9, Doeg the Edomite, who was standing there with Saul's officials, said, he breaks the silence, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitub at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. I don't think Doeg lies here, but he's a nasty piece of work, isn't he? He tells Saul what he saw and leaves Saul to put two and two together and make like 15. And then we see Saul's brutality. Saul immediately summons the priest and his whole family of priests. And again, he can't bring himself to say people's names when he thinks they're against him. And he calls him the son son of Ahitub. Listen now, end of verse 12. Saul says, listen now, son of Ahitub. Yes, my Lord, he answered. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? You and the sons of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of God for him so that he's rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. Ahimelech, in his response, I think is incredibly brave. Firstly, he reminds Saul that David is not a nobody. He's the king's son. He has credentials. The king's son-in-law. He has credentials. Captain of your bodyguard. A highly respected person in the king's household. Then he appeals to precedent. Was it the first day that I'd inquired of God for him? Of course it wasn't. Then... He expresses his innocence. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family. And then he claims ignorance 
I, I, I don't know anything about all this. If this was a court, that was his defense, a good defense, a brave defense. He could have lied and said that David had threatened him. He could have even claimed that David had deceived him, but he told the truth and stood up to Saul. But Saul isn't interested in the truth. He doesn't listen to a word of it. You shall surely die, every last one of you. And he orders his guards to kill all of his priests. And amazingly, they refuse. The king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. And so Saul turns to Doeg and he gladly obeys and slaughters all of them and then goes out and puts the whole town to the sword, even animals and children. It is absolutely shocking. It, it, it is the most brutal overreaction, completely disproportionate. You remember when there was an empty seat at the banquet and Saul flew into a rage and tried to throw his spear at his own son? Here, the priest has given David bread and a sword and a whole town is put to death. Do you know the irony here, this is not really the core of our series, the irony here is that earlier in his reign, God had told Saul to wipe out some of Israel's enemies because of their wickedness, and Saul couldn't bring himself to do it. And yet here, he has no problem massacring his own priests. It's like Saul is friends with his enemies, and enemy with his friends. The people he should be loving and protecting as king... He brutally has slaughtered. Some people have compared Saul here to Pharaoh who killed all the Hebrew babies in the time of Moses. Or King Herod in the New Testament who massacred babies because he feared the birth of Jesus. Being the, the promised king, the king of the Jews. And to get to the Messiah, he killed all of the babies under the age of two. Saul is turning into a kind of antichrist figure here, isn't he? He's unravelling. There's a little PS though. Oops. This man, Abbe Arthur, escapes one single priest out of 85, 86 priests, 85 are slaughtered, one escapes. And it's his, da his dad is Ahimelech. Presumably, he has just witnessed the awful murder of his entire family and town. And the fact that he flees to David shows that he doesn't hold David responsible for this appalling atrocity. And it's striking to me that even though this is an unspeakable crime, David says, I'm responsible. I knew Doeg would tell Saul. David's like, I, I knew it. I, I, when I saw him there with Ahimelech, I should have dealt with him then. This is my fault. The contrast, Saul takes no responsibility. David, who is innocent really, takes responsibility. Saul says to Ahimelech, you will surely die, you and the whole lot of you. And what does David say at the very end of this section? You'll be safe with me. 
One of them is a murderer. The other one is a protector. So, you've seen the evidence. <laughs> Who's the best king? Who's the best king? One of them looks like a king. And one of them doesn't look like a king. One of them is outward looking and growing and the other is totally self-absorbed and shrinking into himself. Does it seem like a no-brainer to you? That's why I didn't print cards off because I didn't think we'd need the other half of them. We should say, put your left hand up if you want David or you're right. You, if we were taking a vote here, who would choose Saul? But can you imagine living in these days? Who would actually choose to follow a David when living in the days of Saul? Wouldn't it be terrifying? Wouldn't, it be ter wouldn't you have to be utterly desperate to go to that cave and follow the outlaw knowing what Saul would do to you if he caught you? My mum used to say to us when we were kids, I'll have your guts for garters. Do you ever know that phrase? You, this would be worse if you were following David and Saul found out. Friends, this is an amazing chapter, but here's where I want to go. Does this same question not apply to us here and now in relation to another king? The Lord Jesus. I want to use this story to challenge you this afternoon and to ask you the question, in all seriousness, which king are you choosing to follow? In the Old Testament here, David is God's chosen king. He is the anointed one. The Hebrew word for anointed one is the word Messiah. It's a Hebrew word. And the Greek word for that Hebrew word Messiah is the word Christ. That's why Jesus is called Jesus Christ. Christ is not his surname, so you can find him in the phone book. It's his title. Jesus the Christ. In other words, Jesus, the anointed one, God's Messiah, God's chosen king. David is like a little mini Messiah pointing to Jesus, the promised Messiah. We sang earlier, it struck me powerfully. By faith, the prophet saw a day when the longed for Messiah would appear with the to break the chains of sin and death and rise triumphant from the grave. This is the true king. In John chapter 10, there's a famous chapter where Jesus, he, he, he uses one of those famous I am designations and he says, I am the good shepherd and he says there, all the, all the ones who ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
He is God's promised king, a good, noble, righteous, brave, and strong king. And I want to say to you this afternoon, the single most important decision that any of us can ever make in our entire lives is what to do with Jesus. God calls us to pick a side and to give our allegiance to his promised king. So think about this. Who in this world, in their right mind, would choose to follow Jesus? Who on earth would choose to follow Jesus in a place like Rotherham? Who here would pick Jesus and give their lives and hearts to him in a place like this? Friends, there's a sense, like in the time of Saul, that you can't really have a foot in both camps. And this world, in many ways, is like the world of Saul, isn't it? It's all about power and status and appearances and control. On the surface, it can look secure, but appearances are deceiving, as we've seen, and it is all, in the end, incredibly fragile. Our human pride fights against the true King, Jesus, and as a result, we destroy ourselves. To follow Jesus, God's chosen King, means to say no to the pride and security that this world offers and to say yes to God's true king. And I I want to suggest to you this afternoon, this is not unlike those characters we read about who joined David in the cave. I, I think there were basically two reasons why those men joined David. First of all, they must have been desperate and fed up with Saul and his broken kingdom. They were needy and they'd had enough. But secondly, surely they must have seen something in David that inspired confidence in them to go and join him when he was an outlaw in a cave. They saw something in him that marked him out. They could see that even though he didn't look like a king, that he really was the king. They picked a side and they chose their king because they were desperate and because they trusted him. And so it is with all of us, isn't it? These are the two same basic reasons why people will choose Jesus to be their king. Surely, first of all, no one ever did that until they first of all realise that they desperately need him. Somehow, those who choose Jesus have been enabled to see through the fog something of their true condition before our great and holy God. Like those who came to David here, they were in debt, spiritually in debt, They're in distress. They're not content. They've become conscious of their own sin. And they can see clearly now that they desperately need a saviour. A saviour who died on a cross in their place. I I was talking to 
some folks in this past week and we were reflecting on the fact that no one will ever choose to follow Jesus until they realize how much they need him. If you don't know something of your own sin, you, you, you won't think Jesus is relevant. But people who choose to follow Jesus, secondly, also have the eyes somehow to see who he really is. By faith, those who choose to follow Jesus sense that even though he came in weakness, humility, and apparent fragility, and even died, that he is actually the glorious king, the true king, who was giving himself for the sins of the world. You see that Jesus is the great self-giving king. And this is why he powerfully rose from the dead to be exalted to the highest throne of all at God's own right hand in heaven. This is why he can powerfully save forever every single person who comes to him and follows him. He is the only one who can be trusted to rule the world because he never uses his power selfishly to oppress and crush others, but he gives himself to bless others. Who does the Father pick to rule the cosmos? It's his son Jesus because only he is worthy and capable to do it without exploiting others. Friends, it will cost you everything to truly follow Christ as your king. But it is absolutely and eternally worth it. Like David did on a small scale, Jesus attracted himself a ragtag bunch of spiritually bankrupt people and he joyfully receives them and leads them and shapes them into his own people. He keeps them safe and he will reward them one day for their loyalty to him. Jesus said this on one occasion, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In other words, if you had everything but no Christ, in reality, you would have nothing. But if you have nothing and you have Christ, in reality, you have everything. So I want to ask you this afternoon, do you have clarity in your life? It's so easy, isn't it, to overcomplicate our lives? 
But the simple question is this, have you picked a side? Have you chosen Jesus to be your king? Please don't fall for the apparent security of this world. It is fragile and fleeting and it will ultimately evaporate and leave you all alone. As Christ said here, deny yourself and follow him and he will welcome you and make you his own. He will change you and give you his power and he will keep you safe for eternal ages. I hope and trust that this is what defines our church family here as we submit to Jesus, our King. Together we can worship God and we can say in these great words of the Apostle Paul, the Father has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.